everyone. Welcome back to Left Page. I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, again, which is good, as we're talking about a particular book and stories, but not with their author, but that could be, that'd be a bit difficult, but with the editor. So joining me to talk uh, about his excellently edited collection of short stories by Robert Murray Gilchrist, I Am Stone, is Daniel Peterson. Welcome. Hi Frank, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, as you said, my name's um, Daniel Peterson. Um, I'm a writer, um, largely kind of a, a reviewer of gothic and weird fiction. I've been for uh, some time. Um, but as you say, I got the opportunity to edit a collection for the British Library Tales of the Weird series, which as, as a fan of the series was certainly a, a, a treat for me, um, but more I think because of being able to get Gilchrist stories back into um, uh, back into the public eye um, has been a dream come true. Really. It's been something I've been trying to do for uh, for quite a few years now. Yeah, that's it's like it was an author that you you first presented it in Romance of the Gothic, and there are a couple of lectures on it. One about the editing of the collection, and it was an author I never really heard of, but learning about him and as a link between this gothic and weird is. It's been a really fun and interesting discovery because he does something very much on his own, and that's great. Yeah, I think you're right. He's kind of he, he is out on his own in lots of ways. He um, Gilchrist was born in 1867 um, in Sheffield in the north of England, and largely stayed there um, for most of his life until he died in 1917. He died at the age of 50, so pretty young, um, after a bout of pneumonia, and he did most of his writing in that area um, around uh, Sheffield and around Derbyshire so kind of he was isolated a bit I think from the you might think the literary tradition um, some of the, the we don't have a lot of information about him but letters to him by other people kind of complain that he keeps himself isolated in the north of England rather than coming to uh, London where all the publishing houses would have been based um, but equally his writing is um, it's neither one thing nor the other which has its detriments but I think makes him um, fairly unique um, in the writing that he does um, and like you say it's a blend weird fiction wasn't wouldn't really have been a thing but he heads towards weird fiction um, and he's yeah. kind of kind of coming out of this um, decadent tradition um, Baudelaire and people like that um, but equally in the middle he's very uh, very gothic in his styling there's lots of crumbling manor houses doomed relationships um, and broken, betrayed trusts, those kind of things. But yeah, it's the what drew me to him largely was this kind of, he isn't the tentacles and the cosmic horror of weird fiction, but equally isn't over the top um, decadent fiction either. He kind of tempers one with the other, which I think is very, very interesting. But equally uh, meant that he didn't have a large audience. Certainly in his, in his lifetime, he was liked for his writing, for his non-weird writing, we could say more than anything else, but he, up until now, in a handful of collections in recent years, he's kind of disappeared, sadly. And I think largely because nobody knew where to put him, which box to put him in, and what genre to um, ascribe him to, which is a shame. Yeah, my, my impression reading the, the various stories, they're like, it, the closest I can pin him down is like, okay, it's a particular time, but that's about it. Because yeah. in terms of genre and what he's doing is like he is in this in between and mixing these things together. And, and before certain things existed, as you mentioned, weird fiction. So like that's the only sort of placement. But in other I, I can definitely imagine in other sort of separate collections of bringing his, his stories. It's like it's not just one thing. So it becomes really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. He stands out. And I think if you're trying to get a coherent collection, and you were maybe slightly over the word count or an anthology or something, you, it's his that you would probably drop because they are a bit of an outlier. And even <clears throat> he's, he's right at the end of the 1800s and into the start of the 1900s, but he refers back to you know, the 1700s, a lot of the references that he uses, uh, the people and artworks and things that he talks about come from um, the 1700s, 1600s even. So I, I get the feeling that he would much rather have been in an older time, perhaps. Mm -hmm. He seemed much more versed 
in that kind of area, rather than talking about the modernity. You know, Sheffield in the early 1900s, very industrial, mechanised city, uh, and he lived to see the First World War, which was you know, a, a, a transformation in how um, conflict started and was undertaken. So he didn't seem that interested, though, in, in technological advancements, science, that kind of stuff. Much more of an alchemist than a scientist, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially and like in terms of form, like his incredibly dense and specific vocabulary, mm. which is like it's reporting to an earlier time, not a, a, a that much of a contemporary changing modern scenario, but like, okay, these older specific forms which are and, and that tells a lot of like in terms of the collection, the work you did on that glossary at the end, which is just okay, these specific words and meanings and how they relate to the story and yeah that that is really impressive well i think it's the thing i've always been interested in like words and the derivation and sources of words where they come from um but i think yeah gilchrist uses it very specifically because even if, if i was writing something and it was in i don't know some kind of older time period not necessarily specific rather than a piano I might have someone play a harpsichord because to me that feels like an older um, instrument. But Gilchrist very specifically uses things like spinets, which is a much smaller, it's a harpsichord-like instrument. But then he talks about specific music that would have been played on a spinet. So he knows, you know, effectively what he's talking about, even though at his, even at his time, which is over a hundred years ago from us, would have been archaic. It would have been, you know, not just old-fashioned. It would have been a much, much more archaic kind of thing. So yeah, building up, I wanted to try and make it as accessible to people. And effectively, I, I talked on the Romancing the Gothic presentation about kind of bringing the book, editing the book and bringing it to life. The British Library were keen on the idea and they liked the idea of using Gilchrist as one of their, um, their sort of authors for the collection, but they needed to sell it. So my main job for that was, how can I make it so that somebody picks up that book rather than a different book? And to make those that writing easier to understand, you might, you know, to make it a learning experience so you can understand what, what a pleasance is. He uses that a lot. Um, um, a culver. He always he never says pigeon, he always says culver. Um, so things like that. But they do add an extra uh, extra level to it. Yeah. Yeah, because it because it is so purposeful. Like it's not, oh, let me choose this because it's no, it's. It, it adds to that feeling and that sort of return to this earlier time, mm, even mm. at that time. So it's like, the, in terms of creation, like it's, these are really interesting stories on just the form that they, they take, uh, even with, with these, at, at times, like Gothic structures and these manor houses and these failed romances. Yeah, yeah. And there's the references he uses as well. There's lots of characters that he kind of mentions. It's like, oh, this is a painting by such and such. Um, Ephra Bain is a poetess and one of the first, um, I think one of the first women to make a living from writing or known to have made a living from writing. So he mentions her, but then that kind of, you could say that reflects on one of the characters in the story where she's mentioned. You, you can just say, oh, there's, there's a reference to a historical figure. Um, but I think he very specifically uses these if you go and look into the life of that person or the art that they created, it adds an extra layer to the story. Um, there's references back to various different people. And then you can, you can over, uh, over egg that and you can say, well, she was friends with this person and they did this. And then you get a web of the history of the time. But I, I certainly think, I don't think he just drops references for the sake of it. Um, they all have a point, I think. And I'm, I'm sure there's ones I've missed that uh, Gilchrist probably would have been quite annoyed that I didn't pick up on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I feel like that the glossary and the edition itself like makes it both accessible if you're not very familiar while also opening those doors for like, okay, you've read this, but you want to get further into what's going on. Yeah. That the, the glossary does both. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And I always liked, I remember growing up, my favourite books were always the fantasy books that had a map at the front and then a glossary at the back of everybody, you know, all the people involved and all the different names for stuff. I think it's just a nice thing. And he, in a kind of selfish way, it was an extra thing I could do to justify me doing the book <laughs> and getting it released. <laughs> but I found that really interesting. I thought that was one of my favourite bits of actually creating the book. Um, the glossary is twice as long as the introduction. 
pretty much. And yeah, going through and making sure that I was getting the right definitions of words because he sometimes uses archaic spellings um, of, of modern words that we would use now, but he intentionally uses more archaic spellings. And the fact that sometimes uh, meanings have changed slightly over time, um, yeah. that there are different, uh, looking back into old dictionaries to try and find more subtle, um, perhaps more relevant ways of using the words that he uses in his, uh, in his stories, yeah. But I, I've enjoyed that, yeah, I really wanted to do it. I did have to try and convince um, Johnny, who's the series editor for Tales of the Weird, because I went slightly over the word count for the entire book. Um, not by much, but I basically, it's one of the thicker of the Tales of the Weird books. So yeah, I had to, um, we, I, I, I got to stick my heels in at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you did. It, it was really helpful. And even then, like the stories are difficult at times but you you make it possible to get into that and I mean like I English is a very familiar second language to me but like there's just a depth to it that it's like oh god mm. um and like just the the suggestion at the end for like the the last three tales are like because they're reproducing dialect to like read them aloud it's like oh I get it now yeah yeah the peak the peak weird tales at the end, um, they are you know, written in very dense di dialect, um, which I think would be difficult for, you know, even a native English speaker from Derbyshire, from that region, because it probably, that has changed. Yeah. Um, but I do think, I think we're quite used to um, very different accents. England, well, Britain as a whole, um, accents do change very quickly. My accent is completely different from my mum's, which is completely different from my dad's because they come from different parts i blend between the two and if i go back to where i came from in the north of england my accent becomes more northern english but i've lived in scotland now for 20 years and i haven't picked any of that up really i've picked up some some of the words that i use but my accent hasn't become particularly scottish but yeah we're used to hearing i think regional regional accents but that is dense um, because it's written in the dialect and it uses dialect words and it references things that happened in Derbyshire 200 years ago, <laughs> which is hard to, hard to um, uh, get on with, I think, these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, you, you can. And like this, uh, the I Am Stone allows you to, to, to the best we can uh, and to the best you, you, you manage. And, and as a reader, like as someone who has never read Gilchrist before, I'm like, oh, I get what's going on. Oh, my God. But I guess what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> that was good I, mean, I was worried that's what we were saying before and I, I was kind of nervous that because he is a very dense author he uses very florid language I think it's probably the best word to describe it and yeah um he is description heavy um he much more is about the feel than the narrative I think um mm -hmm. not all of the stories you could say have a plot like a pageant of ghosts is basically literally a pageant of ghosts one after the other but it's a feel, it gives you this certain um, feel, which I think is, if you're talking about ghost stories at the their sort of basis level, or a you know, horror story, you want just that feel of something, something that gives you a bit of a yeah. shudder, a shudder or a shiver. Um, and I think he does that very well. Um, I think you can overdose on it. I don't think, um, I don't think I'd recommend reading the book in one sitting, um, but yeah, it's, um, it's something, it's, it's quite good to delve into his world for a little while. Yeah, it's it it captures a weird dreamlike feel that like mm. okay, I, I need I need a bit of distance to come back to the real world um, yeah. because it is yeah. really immersive, and yeah, it, it was. I, I know I'm not I'm very much not the the target audience for this book, <laughs> but uh, it was really enjoyable and it was great and it was fun. That's cool. I think that's what's really good about the Tales of the Weird series. I think it's there are some more famous authors um, that have been put in there. There's one on Blackwood, um, Vernon Lee, who I suppose is, is not a household name, but certainly it will be more popular. But the ability to drop in people like Gilchrist, who, yeah, effectively since he died in 1917, has been out of print. There's been two other collections um, that have come and gone fairly quickly. So hopefully this one can stay in print for, um, for a little while longer. It certainly seems to be... But from what I've heard so far, it's not been out for very long, a few months. 
um, it's uh, people seem to be liking it, which is really good. That's great. That's generally great to hear. Like it's because it's it, it's an important part of like literary history, and it's just such a cool set of stories, like all yeah. on its own. Yeah, <laughs> my thoughts exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like it, it, as we're mentioning, like there's just there's so much going on, and, and he, I think, like the I really like the 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 parts which you separate the stories like because they're separated more thematically than anything mm. which is dead yet living useless heroes uh, of passion and of death and peak weird and it's it works it works so well well all of them all of the titles apart from peak weird all the titles are quotes from the sort a story that's in that list so i kind of i don't feel i've taken too much liberty by separating them out but even Peak Weird was a way that his stories, those stories set in specifically in Derbyshire, were described by um, reviewers and critics of the time. Mm -hmm. So I hope that fits as well. But yeah, again, that was another way of trying to present it in a more, uh, I suppose, accessible format, because the British Library wanted, they wanted an introduction mm -hmm. um, to basically explain who Gilchrist was and why he's interesting. Um, I suggested the glossary um, to try and make his writing a bit more accessible. But previous collections, if you take the original collection of books, a uh, collection of stories, sorry, that was released in Gilchrist's time of his weird fiction, they're kind of, there isn't too much rhyme or reason to how they're, um, how they're presented, what the order that they're in. And that's pretty much the same for the Wordsworth Editions collection, which was a paperback mm -hmm. um, collection in that series, which collected most of the stories from the, um, the original collection. And then there was a collection called The Basilisk uh, by Ashtree Press in America. And they effectively did the same series of stories in the same order, but uh, with an introduction, very good introduction, actually, which I used, I based mine, that's one of the thoughts on my introduction on. But there wasn't really any kind of attempt to not categorise them, that makes it sound a bit rough. Some of it was a bit finger in the air, these feel like they go together. Mm -hmm. um, but to have a thematic collection of stories that you probably could read in one sitting and then you know I could then do a very short introduction to each of those categories to explain the, some of the ideas behind the stories in a bit more detail so yeah it was kind of just a way to chop things up and, and collect them and because yeah. I've found uh, three new stories or at least three stories that haven't been previously republished um, I wanted to add them in and put them in a family with other stories that mm -hmm. if people have already got the book, the other books that have been released, or even the original um, edition, they would have something new and, you know, hopefully they would work, work together. But yeah, the idea is kind of the, the category. So Dead Yet Living is what you would probably call his stories about undead, vampires and ghosts, but they're not standard vampires and ghosts. Um, they're not always, uh, I suppose, malevolent. Some of them are very malevolent, but some of them aren't particularly. Useless Heroes is, as it says, it's one of it's a kind of satirical comment in one of the stories about uh, useless male heroes in stories. And a lot of Gilchrist's writing is from a kind of male protagonist perspective, narration perspective, but they often do very little, or they do things that lead to catastrophe for largely female um, characters in the stories. So there's that kind of the apathy of male characters in it, I think is very good. Yeah. You often think of, um, you know, if you go back to what you might think of as uh, more weird stories, it's often a male academic narrator. who probably isn't that active in it, sometimes it's just an observer, um, but they often, you could argue, try their best or something, or they're overwhelmed despite their, uh, their resistance to whatever's happening. In Gilchrist, there's characters who largely do nothing, very apathetic, um, very lethargic, I think. But you were talking before about the grotto at Ravensdale, the male character in that effectively just ignores the fact that his wife is going slowly mad and he's far more interested in uh, repopulating his uh, stock of cattle <laughs> for the yeah. um, decorative cattle, I think, as well. Not even a farm, it's just uh, on the ground of the, of the house. And he just, he just lets things go by until it gets too late and inevitably a, a tragic um, ending appears. Of Passion and Death, I think, is one of my, not necessarily my favourite stories, but my favourite section, because I think Gilchrist is very obsessed with the idea of passion 
in its original sense of torment caused by sort of intense emotion yeah uh, like the passion of christ it's it's not necessarily a very positive energy but it's something that's so it kind of um, tears you apart because you um, you believe so much in it and there's a lot of you could call them love stories but they're often fractured there are people torn between often multiple lovers that may not be responded to or it may not even be a sort of sexual love but some kind of connection but they can't have both and they're torn between uh, between each of them and that often ends in death <laughs> of some kind whether it's kind of literal death or whether it's um, basically just ending the relationship in some way um, there's some kind of death there and then yeah like the peak weird that we've talked about is what Gilchrist was probably known for best in his lifetime um, are his kind of I don't know whether you call them pastoral they are about of the land and people who live on the land but it's they have weird elements and the ones I've chosen have some kinds of either ghostly or horror in its wider sense elements but I think they reflect the hardships of you know being a Derbyshire crofter in um at the end of the 1800s which is probably more horrible than being scared by a ghost in some ways <laughs> but it, it rounds out Gilchrist's writing I think and not too much of a spoiler though I did want to end end the book with a story that has a very rare happy ending um and only the, the peak one of the peak weird tales does that although it's probably to some degree one of the grimmest tales in the book but yeah it does he manages to rouse himself into a happy ending which is nice yeah it, it, like these the peak weird ones are interesting because like they they bring this sort of folklore element or like particular mm. feel to yeah. it where, where others are more like oh the like the noble courtesan the lost mistress or sir toby's wife uh the Broadway ravensdale so there's uh the pageant of ghosts the priest pavan uh, i don't know how to pronounce that i'm sorry <laughs> I think it's Pavan. I've always said Pavan, but I have no real evidence to base that on. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but they are like this other type of like, I'm not going to say like aristocracy, but like there is a sort of connection to a, a lot, sort of nobility or, or, or other classes. And, and the peak weird ones, are they feel a lot more like down to earth. Yeah, yeah. Most of these stories have some kind of fading grandeur. There's like always a manor house that's slightly falling apart or you get the feeling that there's people who were like say not necessarily nobility but um have at one point been powerful and rich and yeah. that's fading away or it's been squandered in some way and the peak weird stories the derbyshire set stories are very much more about the day-to-day -day struggle of working people and gilchrist was very well liked in his um in his time as a person um, he was, uh, he seems to have been well liked by local people. He was well known for, um, he used to like, I suppose what we call hiking now, but tramping across the Derbyshire hills, which are pretty barren places in a lot of ways. The, the hills are more like moorlands um, with lakes scattered between them. Very beautiful part of the country, very windy and very wet. But he would head out in, I uh, imagine, sort of heavy tweeds. And he, he was told some of the Stories about him said that he had a big stick, a big walking stick that he'd knock bracken out of the way with and everything. And he would, yeah, he'd, he'd meet people as he went around. And he seems he seems to have got on well, even though he was he lived he lived in a fairly large hall, um, a house called Cartridge Hall in Derbyshire. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he could have been seen as what this fading ability in himself, but yeah. he doesn't seem to have, have relied on that. I think he just seemed to, to like going about his business in a part of the country that he loved very much. Yeah, I think that's definitely like the feel that this sort of connection to to this place and, and to people is a lot stronger than like this, oh, that this uh, fading away, that this decadence is like, oh, instead of grasping onto that, it's like, it's more like a contemplation and reflection on that. Yeah. And yeah. these last stories are, they're quite entertaining uh, without spoiling too much. It's just, they're good and they're funny and there's like, it, it, they're a very different feel but even hmm. the other ones they um, it's a very particular perspective and, and in a good way uh, of looking at at all these events be it supernatural be it passion be it romance be it useless heroes and be it violence a lot of the time it's hmm. 
violence is really interesting throughout the various stories. Um, at times, like this emotional, at times, like in big weird, a bit like economic, and others like very gruesome supernatural violence. And it's all this particular feel and immersion and vibe uh, mm. that is so strange and so peculiar that, that you're so drawn in. And it's like, oh, oh, it's a yeah. very common feel. It's weird because he does, I think he does wrong foot people quite a lot by what he's done. And that, it might well be that um, a lot of the stories he wrote for magazines, um, mm -hmm. so they might not have been, certainly uh, to start with, thought of as reading them in a, in a group. Um, but he did release his, his weird stories as a short story collection. But I think it's that feeling that you have where in one story he'll have sort of violence will be threatened in some way and then the narrator sort of swoons away and then you just see the results of the violence or violence happens kind of off screen and is discovered later on. And then you have cold blooded murder, um, quite gruesome, basically just slashing people up sometimes. And I yeah. think that's, he had quite... I get the feeling that he was someone who had a lot of interests, certainly literary interests, and you can see he follows certain threads um, at certain times or for certain stories. Some of his um, uh, stories are very much like Poe, very kind of influenced by Poe's yeah. gloomy intimation of what is happening. But then you've got other stories that are um, influenced by Villiers, the French writer who's basically very grand guignol kind of blood spurting everywhere. They were crime stories largely, but um, very uh, over the top uh, ones, which he, you can see that because he meant he, he has a character called Villiers um, in one of his stories. So he, he does drop these references quite blatantly a lot of the time. But I think he sometimes he chose a story idea and then he chose a, a mode in which to tell it. And that's why you do get these different, different um, attempts. But they never feel... The only one I think I feel sort of stands out a bit is uh, Sir Toby's Wife, which is much almost modern yeah. and uh, a very openly gothic story without too much of a twist um, in it. But yeah, but that's again, that's one of these ones that um, I kind of, I wouldn't say rediscovered, but it hadn't been republished before. So mm -hmm. it was interesting to see that in that different tone. But again, he was someone who wrote for a living and he wrote stories for magazines for a living. So if he knows that a magazine are looking for a certain kind of story, he would write that story, I think. Um, yeah. I'm sure that, as it still happens today. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to ask a very cool question. Um, <laughs> and you can dodge it as best you can. Uh, what are your favourite stories in the collection? <laughs> That's quite an easy uh, question. And my favourite one is The Crimson Weaver, uh, which is the first story in the collection I specifically put that at the start. So I thought, if you don't like this, you probably won't get much out of the rest of the book. Yeah. It's very short. Um, I first, well, when I first discovered Gilchrist, it was that Wordsworth edition book that I found in a secondhand bookshop. And I only really picked it up because I'd got some of the series and they were reproducing, um, like, it, it was largely author-based uh, collections rather than themed anthologies. Mm -hmm. So there was um, books by uh, Poe and various other Gothic writers like that. And I just, yeah, it was a few pounds in a second-hand bookshop somewhere, so I picked it up and then probably didn't read it for a very long time, as is often the case with me. But I eventually got into it, and The Crimson Weaver is the first story uh, in that collection, which is interesting because they could have easily just republished The Stone Dragon, which was the weird collection of weird fiction that was released in, um, in Gilchrist's lifetime. But The Crimson Weaver and a couple of the other stories um, were from publications, and they'd added them in probably to bulk out the book because I think it wouldn't have been too big if it was just the Stone Dragon again. Mm -hmm. um, and The Crimson Weaver was published in The Yellow Book um, after Aubrey Beardsley had left. So it kind of reminds Wayne at that point. But he was, I think there's a story by Henry James in the same issue. So it's, it's still getting good names in it. Um, and yeah, The Crimson Weaver takes a handful of pages Again, it's one of these ones more about feel than plots. You have to work out the plot yeah. um, as it goes on. But very, that dreamlike imagery. Um, and then the protagonists fall asleep twice in, in six <laughs> pages or something like that. Um, but the, it, it, 
brings in one of my other favourite bits of, of Gilchrist writing is that Harry uses flower symbology quite a lot, flowers and plants and their properties or their believed yeah. properties to give you an idea of, um, and again, an additional layer. So the, the, the protagonist in The Crimson Weaver, the master and the um, apprentice, they're not named, fall asleep um, in a forest, but it's a yew forest, and yew is poison, poisonous. Almost every part of the yew tree is poisonous to humans. Um, and even um, what he calls the mast, so the pollen and the, the sort of bits that drop off the tree, can cause hallucinations and can cause you to have visions. So they fall asleep under these trees, and that's kind of the break when things go from normal to uh, abnormal, <laughs> when they encounter the Crimson Weaver herself. So I just like that, the idea that, you know, you could just say they're just, it's quite picturesque to think of two travellers sleeping in a yew tree. We may know that yews have this kind of um, uh, ominous feeling, but they grow in churchyards and all this kind of stuff. But that hallucinogenic aspect to them makes it a bit more, is this happening? Is it not happening? Um, and if it's not really happening, why are they seeing these visions? Is it someone's guilt? Is it someone's... Um, you know kind of dreams or aspirations it makes it it adds a lot of layers to what is a very very short story effectively not to give too much away because it kind of spins it a bit but a vampire story to some degree although a very strange unusual kind of vampire but yeah that's um i think that's that's my favorite after that it kind of it depends on mood um mm -hmm. i like the return a lot i think the return is a very clever um, piece of ghost story which is fairly done in a very matter-of-fact kind of way largely but it's it's quite an unsettling ghost story for all the fact that it isn't nothing really too disturbing happens you know actively in the story but the story itself I do find um, quite disturbing. The Stone Dragon is probably one of his longest short stories and that has some some brilliant bits and quite a it's kind of one of those weird, I'm sure there's a special word for it, but when you think the ending has come and then there's a little stab of an ending right at, at the <laughs> end and that's where it all comes comes together. Um, and then there's the, um, stories like My Friend and things like that I think are very, uh, very good. And then Might on the Moor, which was the title of the Wordsworth edition. Ah, um, right. That's, yeah, that, that could be in another, if it was taken to a slightly different direction, um, it could almost be sort of science fiction, speculative fiction at least because there's this intimation of falling through time or revisiting past times, it, yeah, it gets, it's, it's quite a strange, strange story. And again, it has that feel of violence behind closed doors. You get a peek into a relationship that's been sour for quite a long time, I think, which is, yeah, it's kind of, you realise what's going on and it becomes quite nasty, but it's it never, never explicit, never gory. So I, I like that. But the, the, yeah, I could I could say why I like all of the stories, but I think certainly <laughs> the Crimson Weaver is my favourite. If that's um, uh, if one person was going to say what what story should I read, I would probably recommend that. That's one that you can find online quite easily. You can find that not often held up as an example of, of his Gilchrist writing, if anything is. So yeah, you can hunt that out. Yeah, look, I, I think for me, like the Crimson Weaver is definitely one of my favourites because. Uh, it, it, that whole atmosphere that, again, taking a, a very strange and particular turn with a vampire, but in a way that works so well, mm. and so interestingly. Yeah, yeah. And kind of, to me, it's not even, it's quite strange to be able to do something new with vampires, and although this is a very old story now, yeah, the, the way that it, it, it takes myth and it takes other kind of stories and then brings them into something that is just its own its own element. And yeah, like the, the, the dreamlike qualities of the palace of the Crimson Weaver, where the, the mask and the apprentice eventually end up. Everything seems to be full of pollen and birds, and the air is dense with fume. It's um, yeah, it's I think it's a it's a brilliant story. I think it, it could be one of those things that's uh, you know, if you're not gonna enjoy that kind of writing, it would just seem far too over the top. If you go with it. And you go with the flow and getting again his fairly archaic language um, and reference points and everything. Um, I, it, it catches me up every time I read it, even though I've read it a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting as a story. It's like, and, and in terms of vampires, like 
it's it's interesting that like a lot of weird vampires have been finding on older references like in terms of romancing the gothic we read city of vampires by paul feval which is 18 something um 18 67 i don't remember anymore mm. um but it's got these very weird vampires with greenish glow and they have some of the weirdest body abilities i've ever seen on a vampire and it's just <laughs> a funny book and the main character is uh ann radcliffe vampire hunter oh, okay yeah so uh it's a it's a weird one i i do recommend it it's it's a strange I I one on, on one of the you know, the lectures of romantic the gothic yeah yeah it was quite good that but yeah i think the idea of being preyed upon vampires you know that they are you know, i suppose in literary terms rel still relatively recent but there's lots of folk myths about various kinds of what you could call vampiric forces um things that come and prey upon you in some way so yeah just taking that into something a bit different and quite interestingly i think the gilchrist certainly the crimson weaver it's she's an artist as well she's not just yeah. some kind of monster or something um i'm sure she could justify what she does quite easily <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I agree like it's it, 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 as, as i mentioned like violence and like horror it, there's no it's not like oh it's this it's just this it's simply this or it's easily this nope yeah. not at any point it's always like oh no what 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 are you doing what oh no <laughs> oh, so that happened right yeah, yeah. uh the, the return is a, a, a another lovely story it's uh yeah uh, it looks like i read i read them all like over the course of around two weeks or something while doing a million other things so I remember like the the latter sections and the first ones like I remember them like oh right this happened this happened yeah but there's like the familiarity of like gothic workings like these manuscripts and like at times letters or accounts or journals mm, yeah Gilchrist plays a lot with so much and like even just like this is uh, we won't say probably won't say much about it because it's just it's a really interesting and weird story bubble magic. Um, don't yeah, know what you expect. Do on that? It is a strange one, and yet it's like, oh, right. Yeah, and that kind of the ending of that again is very strange. This guy just rides up and they go, oh, it's you. <laughs> but um, yeah, and but that gets I think down to Gilchrist's the way that characters are often torn in their relationships and yeah. the, the relationships that they should be having and the relationships that they want to have. Um, and Gilchrist himself was gay and lived with his partner George. For for at least until his death, probably for over 20 years um, in Cartridge Hall, um, in a time when that was something that, you know, it could be known, but not necessarily known publicly, or people didn't speak about it too much. And certainly, um, I think probably in Sheffield, in rural Derbyshire, it's hard to say. I mean, it could well be a thing people keep to themselves and uh, don't talk about it too much, or it could have been something that was might have been a problem if it had been um, more well known. And you don't know if he had moved to look London, or I spent more time in London. Um, it could have been something that he was more open about, but it's it's easy to speculate about that kind of thing. But I do think his um, use of relationships and um, that kind of strange thing, like I mentioned before, the male characters often being kind of apathetic and yeah. listless, whereas the, the female characters aren't always the uh, rarely, if ever, the narrator, but are often the more they take action um, yeah. a lot more, even if that action leads to catastrophe or uh, to harm on themselves they actually do things they try and do things with their lives and they get out and aren't content just to sit and uh spin <laughs> or do you know do um whatever a woman should have been doing in those periods or what people believe they should be doing so i think there's a lot in there uh, and it's a shame that we don't have lots of um writings there's apparently his diaries in the sheffield archive which i'm going to try and get to go down to I, because of lockdown and everything when I was editing the book I couldn't get to see those annoyingly because they're not digitized they're just mm. they're in cardboard boxes in Sheffield apparently um mm. but you get right you get letters uh, to him one of his friends William Sharp who was another author wrote a number of letters saying I wish you'd get out more basically um <laughs> I wish you'd come to London or visit me or whatever and because he repeats these it seems that Gilchrist never really did 
Um, so I think he, he, yeah, he kind of was quite an insular character, but seemed quite happy with it. Um, I think he liked, he liked living on the hills, living his own life, largely. Yeah, and that's great. Like I, I, I there was, um, you mentioned like in the, in the lectures you did for Mason the Gothic, how like he was, he was all liked. He, he, he was a good lad. So got to be happy with that. Yeah, yeah. He seems to have lots of friends. He was a correspondent with H.G. Wells. I don't think they knew each other particularly well, but he did. Um, he did have correspondence. Um, but yeah, he had lots of um, lots of friends who tried to support him and his writing. The uh, Hugh Walpole, um, who's descendant of Horace Walpole, was very much a supporter. He met him as a younger man and always tried to champion Gilchrist stories even after his death. And it just seemed that they never got traction. You know, a lot of people, some people, would enjoy them. But if they weren't being actively promoted, they would again just drift off into obscurity again, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, and there is comment in Walpole's memoirs that at the end of Gilchrist's life, when he was quite ill, um, I, Walpole said that he was never bitter, um, but he was disappointed that his sort of writings um, weren't picked up. And he wrote a lot. He wrote 22 novels and six collections of various short fiction, and none of the novels are in print. Um, the uh, the repository library in Edinburgh here in Edinburgh um, has one of his books, oh, wow. a copy of one of his books, and it's in the reading room. So you have to go and sign in, and you can't take it out, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it just it seems a shame. He's a vast body of work, not all of which is brilliant. I'm first to admit that. Certainly, these novels, they are, they, um, well, the one I've read, which is the one in um, the Edinburgh Library, is mm -hmm. lengthy. Um, it's if you can imagine one of his the density of one of his short stories stretched out to a novel. It's hard work, <laughs> but there's yeah. lots of very good bits in it. Um, it would be nice to go through some of the others and see what might be missed there. It could be um, some extracts might be nice to see, but yeah, getting hold of them is very difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I like the, the, they work really well as short stories and even longer short stories, but as a novel. Can't imagine it'd be a bit rough. Most of the reviews of the time say that effectively it's kind of there's too much going on here. Can you, you just calm it down a bit? And I think when that's that dreamlike lack of plot works in a short story because you can just dip in and you know, even if you don't like it, you've not spent a lot of time. Um, yeah. But his novels don't necessarily resolve as you might expect a novel to do. Mm -hmm. And one of the reviewers, one, one of the more scathing reviews of one of his books says that he started and couldn't finish. So it's kind of, you know, he just gets to a point where he stops and the book stops um, and that's about it. And that's, that's a criticism of his longer work that's repeated and probably completely justified because I can, I can see that if you do just stretch out your short stories into a longer form, it probably would be. You'd think, oh, there's brilliant bits and there's some very striking bits, but where is the story? Interesting yeah. that some characters from his short stories appear in his novels, at least the same names appear. Um, so he has this kind of family lineage going through his stories, which is quite a gothic, um, gothic thing to think about. But equally, you know, names do repeat. You go to Derbyshire now and you can see graves with na the same names as some of his characters. So it's that they could well just be local names. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, and just like all of it. But you know, might might be a, an interesting venture, like to to pick out some of those the interesting stuff amongst like so much work, like given that he wrote so mm. much, and this like yeah 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 this this is, and I, I think this is really cool and, and worth mentioning again if I haven't already, but like this is the most complete collection of Gilchrist stories to date. Yes, I kind of I did write that in a in a tweet fairly jokingly, but just as a self self-aggrandizement but i think it is um it's definitely in in the sense that it's the only one in print at the moment and by default it is <laughs> but if you go back the wordsworth edition is just reprints of the stories uh, including some typos and grammatical errors that have crept in which hopefully i've corrected in i am stone the ash tree press is very nice very nice hardback very nice um cover artwork and a very good introduction but it doesn't have or is it the, the Holocaust, Sir Toby's Wife, and The Strolling Player, which are the three stories I've added in into mm -hmm. I Am Stone, and I think they add, add a bit extra. And there could well be more. I'd heard reference, there was an essay um, about Gilchrist, one of the few bits of sort of critical thought about Gilchrist that mentioned um, Sir Toby's Wife as a, a story. Mm. 
but um, the Holocaust I just stumbled across online in, a, in an archive of journals. I think it was in the Idler, the journal called the Idler. Um, and I just, I had no idea that existed. Um, and I'd been looking for and found quite a few stories that I'd not seen before, but most of them had been these more peak stories and mm -hmm. the more uh, mundane peak stories. So tales of farm life and things, which are then nice, but they didn't really fit the book. Um, but the, the Holocaust certainly has a weird feeling. And again, it's a very dense story. It's told yeah. at a remove of time by an onlooker. So it kind of, it, you have to get to the end and then kind of read it again to get a feel of what's been going on. But it, it has that, again, sacrifice and passion all the way through it, I think. So, yeah, that was a good find. It was a nice, um, nice thing to add in. Oh, for sure. Like, it, it's, a, it's a great story and it, it definitely fits. Mm. It's, yeah, it, it, it's just a great collection. Like, I do wholeheartedly recommend it. Oh, I'm glad. No, I'm, I'm really pleased. <laughs> I always remember when I got, um, I'd been speaking, I mentioned this in the talk I did about the development of the book. It, I'd been speaking to the British Library for two years before we got the, the go ahead um, to do it. Because the team is very small. Um, mm -hmm. Johnny, the editor, I think, works on other series as well. So he kind of has oh. to divide his time. So there's, there's lots of stuff going on. But yeah, I, I, I spoke to Johnny at a, a conference and we just happened to be at the same one. And I'd been thinking about if I if I could do this, I'd just bring Gilchrist back and get him in a book. And what I wanted, I'd had some interest from the University of Wales, but they wanted a much more academic book, mm. which would have been brilliant to do. It would have been a lot more work for me, which would have been fine, but it also would have been a lot more expensive for people to buy, mm. which was not really what I wanted um, it to be. I wanted it to be, you know, in high street bookstops um, mm -hmm. and able for, you know, not expensive so people could pick it up. And then mm. Tales of Weird happened as a thing, and I was kind of, I, I've got a load of them. I really like the books themselves. And then I thought, well, that something eventually clicked and thought, if I pitched this, it could be a good idea. And yeah, mm -hmm. it was um, I basically just me pestering Johnny for two years, saying, are you still thinking about this? And as long as he'd never said no, I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, this might still be a thing. And then I got, I was out walking my dog um, earlier this year, March, I think it was. Um, we um we were just in the process of moving house so i had all that going on and i had surgery on my wrist so my hand was completely out of action for a while and i got an email that, that said um hi dan how are you doing i'm sorry dot 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 and that was the the kind of preview that i got on my phone and I went, oh well fine you know i've tried but whatever and then um i opened it and i got fully opened it when i got back home and it said i'm sorry i've not got in touch for you with you recently but we'd love to go ahead with the book so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i was um i was elated genuinely um amazed that we could do this but he said well the release date is going to be august of this year so i thankfully gilchrist had been kind enough to write all the stories so i didn't have yeah. to do anything there but I had to do the ordering, I had to write the introduction, which I've done most of in kind of preparation, and then the glossary, which is probably the most, the most work, whilst moving house and whilst only having one, one hand working. But yeah, it's just, I'm just so pleased that people seem to be enjoying, enjoying his writing. Um, yeah. And it's part of such an amazing, uh, amazing series of other, um, mostly not forgotten, I think, not a lot of them, but um, uh, not so famous, certainly, or not so well read. Um, and it's nice to have another series, a series of weird fiction that isn't just Lovecraft again, um, or Lithoff yeah. stuff, and, and um, looks at weird from different angles. Yeah, because weird has been and has become what it was because of different stuff, like like Gilchrist himself. Um, mm, so it's yeah. good to have yeah. that like available and, and recovering these stories. Like it just, I mean, historian, so <laughs> I like that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I thought it was it's very good. It's, not, it's kind of, I never really thought it would come to fruition, but I thought it was worth asking, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, the Tales of the Weird series seems to be you know, justifiably well-liked by people. And I think people are aware of it as a series now. So getting yeah. in, it was the 25th, there's been a couple more re released recently. It's part of a, a good family to be part of, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. And it's it's also very pretty. I like. I mean, I have the beautiful books, yeah. <laughs> because because uh, reasons. Because uh, admittedly, I can't get them at reasonable prices, like via Brazilian Amazon. But they uh, well, they take so long to arrive, and 
yeah. yeah. I'm sorry I don't have the physical version. Maybe someday, but uh, it's still very yeah. pretty. I don't know what the deal is with kind of um, wider publication. I know they come out in America, but uh, a bit after the UK uh, publication date, it would be nice to get them elsewhere. I mean, they are, they are nice books. They're, you know, a standard paperback, but um, Mauricio, the designer, has done great work on it, and um, Sandra, who does the illustrations as well. I like the striking. It would be very easy to make them quite over the top if you're wanting to do weird fiction, but yeah. the fact they've kept them monochrome, so each book has one just the one colour, but it's always a pretty, I was going to say violent colour, bright acid yellows and greens and purples and things. But yeah, they're brilliant. I've got a shelf full of them and I've got them all rainbow organised across the way, which looks great. <laughs> yeah, as a collection, it's very aesthetic. Like I, I, I look at the pictures, I'm like, oh, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely it belongs in a nice place, I am stoned for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think Gilchrist would like it. I think he would, um, yeah, like the idea that he's um, something that people have taken a bit of effort with and has got a nice touch to it. Yeah. Hopefully, anyway. I always find it amusing. It's like, oh, this uh, incredibly, you know, sort of more isolated, more narrow uh, author in Britain is like, oh, here I am in Brazil in the 21st century reading him. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think he liked traveling his mind um, a lot. I mean, there's what in Walpole's memoirs talks about visiting Gilchrist, um, and he would sort of Gilchrist would just tell stories um, of far off places, all this kind of hmm. stuff. And I think he liked the idea of traveling much more than the reality of traveling, um, which I think is I can I can agree with that. I like going to places, but sometimes the going there can be a bit fraught. Um, and if you think traveling down from Sheffield in the late 1800s down to London, you're really just exchanging one industrial smog bound city for another. And it might well not feel like it's worth the effort if you if you live actually in the hills and the countryside. And even today where um, where Cartridge Hall is, is just a small village. Um, Sheffield itself has grown a lot larger, um, but you're out in the, in the countryside right on top of a top of a very sort of exposed hill. So, yeah, things haven't changed too much for him. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, this has been it's a very interesting and all more different as an episode, like talking about the edition and Gilchrist. But I do, I mean, history is a pretty big thing for me. So like to, to narrow on this and in this literature and what, what is going on and, and how what he did and what you did, Dan, <laughs> um, it's it's really good and really fun. I really liking this and really enjoyed this this discussion. We I think we're coming up in about an hour. Um, so mm -hmm. I want to ask yeah. if there's anything else that you want to mention or talking about Gilchrist, the stories, the collection, the editing. Um, I think the only thing really is if um, if people want to know more about Gilchrist, they can always get in touch with me. If you can put up my um, blog details or something, they should be. Oh, for sure. You know, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter, or um, often talking about Gilchrist. Um, but no, I just think the opportunity to to be able to talk bring his writing back. Um, I always feel a bit, I wouldn't say nervous, but it's kind of it's Gilchrist's book. Um, mm -hmm. I've just facilitated it being republished and hopefully made it a bit more accessible for people a hundred years after you know, his death. But yeah, he wrote the stories and did most of the work for me. So I have to thank him <laughs> uh, above everybody else. Um, but yeah, if you haven't got the book, then um, please do buy it. That would be nice. Um, but one thing I mentioned is even if people aren't particularly fond of Amazon, which is understandable, um, if you go onto the Amazon page and look, do the look inside preview, you can read the introduction and then the first two stories because they're short enough to be included in that. Hmm. So you can get a feel for the book just by those. And that is um, The Crimson Weaver and The Return. So they're the stories we've talked about. G good stories to be at the start. It is. Yeah, it's really pleased. I, I, I put them at the start because I thought if people are flicking through, they might look at those. I didn't even think about what Amazon preview might put up. <laughs> um, but it's worked out quite pleasingly. And it, you kind of get a paragraph or two of the third story, um, but hmm. you get those first two. Um, uh, straight in but no, then the, basically I'm trying to think about what to do next um, with Gilchrist um, I've been speaking to uh, Sofia Adamovich about possibly setting up some kind of research project or society mm. we always said there isn't much about him there is stuff there but it hasn't really been mined so mm. we don't know a lot about his life um, at all 
Sophia's gone through um, his commonplace book, so his ideas for stories and jottings and everything, mm-hmm. um, and had a look at, at those. So she's working on that. Um, I might start working on some of the letters that have been written to him and try mm. to build up an idea of his life and what he was doing from that um, and try and find out some more. So there's a lot more to do. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to, um, if people see the book, I'm always pleased to see where it ends up. Um, and yeah, if, uh, if you get it and you enjoy it, I always, I love to hear from people who like the, like the stories. It, um, I like to think uh, if somehow I find out about it, then somewhere Gilchrist might know about it as well, which would be pleasing. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, thank you so, so much, Dan. I'll put all the relevant links, including your Romance of the Gothic talks in the description and the show notes. And mm-hmm. yep. um, going forward, if there's anything like that you end up doing or any other work or anything that you'd like me to show, I'll be happy to. Um, and you're always welcome to ba- come back on if at times so you want to talk about something more specific or talk about Gilchrist, talk about a story yeah. or something. Um, it's, uh, yeah. it's never an exclusive yeah. invitation. Like you could come back. <laughs> brilliant no that'd be good no it doesn't feel like it's been an hour that was lovely i really enjoyed talking i always enjoy talking about gilchrist um and his his work um yes yeah, even when i'm talking about him i often find have some new ideas about where to go or where to take it or new new thoughts about his stories and stuff i probably think about some far too much really <laughs> long dead but um no it's, it's good to bring these back no thank you for having me thank you for inviting me along the, the pleasure really is all mine like seeing some of the work and, and uh, Dan also did a few workshops on the days of creation uh, which were very good so yeah knowing about you your work is like yeah no especially after I'm Stone came out I'm like yeah no I, I know what we're gonna do now <laughs> so it's just a matter of like reaching out and uh, scheduling and reading yeah uh, which eventually yeah, happened no, well, especially, I mean, now that uh, most things are online, I did do, there was a couple of conferences I went to and those physical ones. Um, mm. So being able to do stuff like this um, is, is brilliant. Yeah, it's really good. Especially, yeah, being able to speak to people who are halfway across the world is always nice as well. Yeah, um, I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, thank you so, so much, Dan. Uh, on my end, like, people can find the left page at leftpagepod on Twitter at uh, and uh, on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page, where I do the reading corners, where I talk about something else that I read or, or, or I'm thinking about, be it theory or some, uh, something that didn't make it into a story or an episode. I'm now thinking about doing one of the Gilchrist stories. Thank you, Dan. Uh, that, that might be yeah. fun and useful and helpful because this month and the next one are going to be chaos. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I also do the writer's desk where I talk about writing and how to think about writing in particular aspects so my latest one was about oh god I, I recorded it and published it last week uh, the next one's going to be about memory um, and how do you navigate memory and biography oh the last one was about religion of course which was very spooky um, so yeah um, we, I also do some other interesting stuff other than the episodes themselves. Um, but yeah, do check out Dan's work. Do check out I Am Stone. Do give a bit of Gilchrist a read. And if you enjoy it, I cannot recommend the collection enough. It was really good and really fun. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again, Dan. And I'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Thank you.